Hello and welcome to another episode of To Affinity and Beyond. This week we have the pleasure of being joined by Ash Fontana, author of the AI First Company and managing director at Zeta Venture Partners, a business that invests exclusively in early stage AI startups. During the podcast, we talk in depth about Ash's book. We talk about what it means and how to become an AI first company. And we go into detail on a number of the key concepts from the book. So we talk about data learning effects. We talk about acquiring data to build and perfect an AI. We talk about the talent war. So being able to acquire the people that you need to build an AI system. And we also talk about what Ash looks for when investing in early stage AI companies. It's a great discussion and I really do hope you enjoy it. So Ash, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. First of all, I must say congratulations on the book, The AI First Company. Um, It's a a fantastic book, fantastic read actually. I uh, have read or more precisely listened to the book uh, earlier this week. I uh, actually changed um, location. I moved house last summer. So when I go back into the office, which I've recently started to do, uh, I have about a 90 minute drive into the office, sometimes more if the traffic's bad. And so I have ample opportunity to listen to books and and podcasts. And I listened to your uh, book early uh, this week. And one of the things that really, really struck me is you seem to have found the balance between writing a book that will be really, really useful and insightful to business executives who are charged with or need to um, be responsible for um, their businesses becoming AI first. So I think it really works on that level. But then also it acts as a very practical handbook or a playbook for the managers who are then tasked with implementing everything that needs to be in place for a business to become AI first. So I think it's very difficult to strike that balance. And I think, I think the book does, does it really well. And I'd strongly encourage anybody listening to the podcast to, to seek the book out. Um, we're going to explore some of the themes that run through the book. But you know, before we do that, I, I think for context, what would be really interesting to know, p- particularly given that you seem to have a, a, an extremely high level of technical knowledge around AI and, and data and some of the component parts of building an, an AI first company, how did you end up um, getting involved in the field of AI and, and, and yeah, where does that stem from? Good question. Um, so I got involved in the field of AI in a few different ways. One of those ways is I started a company at the start of what we now know as the big data era, which I guess was around you know, just before and just after 2010. And so I became aware of the challenges of managing large amounts of data there. But then I, the second way in which I became aware of AI and the potential was just working with so many different companies uh, when I was getting the fundraising platform at AngelList off the ground and seeing which ones were doing really interesting stuff there and and really pushing the boundaries uh, and comparing them to the companies that were more just starting your sort of standard software companies. But most importantly, um, my partner Mark started a fund called Zeta and I joined him um, and we launched it together. And Zeta was the first fund completely focused on AI and that is backing companies that fundamentally develop a competitive advantage through data and then compound it, make it more powerful through the use of intelligent systems. And by starting that fund at 
what was really the start of this generation of AI companies, which was around 2013, there was a big resurgence in research, there was a lot more data going across the internet, and there was a lot of computing power available that wasn't previously available. We have had the opportunity, and I specifically have had the opportunity to work for a whole bunch of pioneers in the industry. That is people that are trying to, or have been trying to commercialize AI research. And they've done a phenomenal job of this. Um, and working alongside them, working for them, has allowed me to learn about the specific challenges of bringing AI to market into the real world. And so that's where the bulk of my experience has been um, gathered, collected. And it was the case about two years ago that I realized, look, there's so much I'm learning in the boardroom, so to speak, and by working for these founders of these breakthrough AI-first companies every day, that I should probably consolidate it and share it. Because on the one hand, I saw them making so much progress and us making so much progress with these earlier stage AI first companies, but also large corporates um, really falling behind. And so I thought, well, I can bridge a knowledge gap here by writing a book. And then the second thing was that I actually finally coalesced onto one big idea and concept that explains the type of competitive advantage in a way that others haven't been able to explain it before. And that is a data learning effect. Um, and I, I guess just to kick us off um, as we work through the main f um, themes of the book, what do you class as an AI first company? Mm -hmm. So um, sort of annoyingly, an AI first company is a company that puts AI first. But what does that mean? It means putting AI first in every conversation you have. So the high level strategy conversations, of course, which is what competitive advantage do we fundamentally have as a company? Are we deriving a competitive advantage because of our patents? and how much longer have we got there or because of our brand or whatnot? Uh, or are we deriving it from the data we're collecting and the predictive value of our product or the automation our product adds um, or is able to, to achieve? So the high level strategy conversations often involve a notion of whether or not a company is using AI to develop and maintain and grow a competitive advantage. But the other component um, components of a business and the conversations around those strategies, the strategies of those components are also important. And that is pricing, policy, people, products. All of those conversations can put AI first in them. So, you know, when you're talking about pricing, should, perhaps you should consider how pricing a certain way encourages more usage of the product and therefore more data collection. When you're talking about products, there are trade-offs between adding features because they make the product easier to use or faster, or adding features, adding buttons that enable you to collect more data. So there are all sorts of trade-offs when you're creating an AI-first company, um, or creating a company, I should say. And some of those trade-offs allow you to create an AI-first company, and some of them do not. And um, that's what an AI-first company does. It repeatedly makes the trade-offs that are required to put AI data collection and building models on that data first so that you develop a strong competitive advantage. Okay, so there's a definite mindset mm -hmm. shift yeah. required. 
for the companies to, to become AI first. Um, and why do you think it's going to become so important over the next decade or so? Um, I think it's going to become, or it already is really important and become even more important, um, frankly, because it's possible and it's useful. So on the possible side, at this point in time, there is so much data, there are very powerful computers, and there's very good research around various methods to allow computers to learn over information. And so it's possible to do things like make really uh, reliable predictions or automate things to a significant degree. And those are very useful things. And so companies all around the world, because this is possible, are, are, are using AI. And so it's the case that if you're not using it, then one of your competitors might. So that's the first reason why I think it's important for companies to, um, to really think about being AI first, because if you don't, your competitors will be. The second reason is, um, and this is sort of more of a top-down thing, if you look at the most valuable companies in the world, indeed the only trillion dollar companies, they have been AI first for a very long time now. In the case of Google, since the beginning, in the case of Amazon, for you know, 20 years, probably 15 years at this point. And in the case of Microsoft, sort of always, but sort of only recently, in that they've been developing fundamental technologies for a very long time around AI, but um, only really sort of embedding it in their actual products and how they make money recently. So, you know, it's the case that the most valuable companies are built this way, and you can see that they enjoy a very, very long um, lasting competitive advantage. And so that's the second reason why it's important to be AI first. The third reason is, is, um, is even more existential than, you know, a more contemporary consideration of who your competition is or what currently is enjoyed as a particularly long lasting competitive advantage. And that is, look, at the end of the day, we live in a dynamic environment. We compete in a dynamic environment. And AI helps you be smarter. And what's being smarter? It's learning quicker. And learning quicker is, a, you know, an existential need in a dynamic environment. If things are changing all the time, but you're not learning how they're changing, then you're going to fall behind. And look, to really sort of take this from the abstract to the real, over the last year, we've seen a lot of things change in very unpredictable ways. Various things have not been available. You know, various parts of the supply chain have completely failed. Various um, parts of the economy have been completely ruined. And various biological systems have um, behaved in a way that's been, um, that's been unpredictable as well. And we have, and we have used, but could have used better, depending on who we were and where, what industry we were in AI over the last year to adapt more quickly to that situation. Um, but the point is, we're always going to be in this dynamic, unpredictable environment. And so the imperative to learn really quickly is really an existential one. Yeah. Okay. Um, and you mentioned the trillion dollar uh, companies, so the, the likes of Google, I guess. Um, could you point to any other companies that um, you would class as exemplars of, of being an AI first business? Yeah. So I'd bucket them into three categories. The first category are the, the big tech companies that have been AI first. Um, for a very long time. So Google, Amazon, uh, Microsoft, etc. but also Salesforce, you know, has for a very long time put AI 
at the top of its agenda, you know, whether it's in the acquisitions it's made or the product features that it's built or the way it's constructed its ecosystem so that it collects more data itself. So the big tech, a lot of big tech companies are AI first, and so that's the first bucket. The second are the newer companies that are pretty big, um, but only recently IPO'd, and they're companies like Palantir, UiPath, etc. Now, um, there's companies that are sort of on the brink of that, like Databricks, um, Snowflake, you know, you can put these companies in this second bucket. Now, what I would say is <clears throat> they are not AI first in that their products are not products that um, organically collect data and compound the value of that data through some intelligent system and then offer up the product of that system, a prediction or something, just like Google offers up a prediction about what search results going to be best for you or what place that you just searched for in maps is the one you're actually looking for. These companies in the second bucket don't do that. They build tools to let other people build AIs. So Palantir builds tools to help governments build AI systems. UiPath builds tools to help you figure out how to automate your own processes yourself, not they don't, they don't do it for you. They, they build a tool to help you do it. Um, and Snowflake builds tools to help you move data around really quickly um, and run models really efficiently. Uh, but you've got to build models. So that's the second bucket of companies. They're newer. They're big, um, they're really significant, their tools are very powerful, but they're not applying AI and to their own products. They're enabling you to apply AI to your, to your products. Um, the third bucket of companies are more of the startups. And so they sort of fall in two buckets. One bucket is sort of like the second category, like the snowflakes and whatever else in that they're building tools and infrastructure. So lots of great startups out there doing things like that, like weights and biases and Domino Data Lab, a company we invested in, um, and many, many more. Lilt is a company that does language translation that we invested in as well. Um, and lots of companies we haven't like DBT and, and whatnot. So there are lots of really promising startups out there that are building products that again, help you build your own AI but also startups that are applying AI in their own products um, to specific verticals. So Tractable is a company we invested in based in the UK that uh, helps insurance companies process property and casualty claims really quickly, um, car insurance claims specifically and mostly. Um, there's lots of examples in the medical space. So yeah, the, again, to summarize, the first bucket are big tech companies that use AI in their own products. The second bucket are big, but not so gigantic trillion dollar companies that uh, build products to let you build your own AIs and put that in your own products. And the third are startups, which sort of fall into both, both horizontal and vertical. One of the um, core components of the book that you talk about early on um, are data learning effects or DLEs. So could you just talk us through what a DLE is and you know why that's important to an AI first company? Yeah, absolutely. The data learning effect is the big idea in the book. And it is the really important thing for people to understand if they are to build an AI first company or understand other AI first companies. Now I will flag up front that the book itself has a lot of illustrations and equations and examples that explain what a DLE is. And it's the case that, you know, I think it, it would really help if people read that 
Um, if I didn't think that, I would have just written a blog post or done a podcast on it. Um, but it's an involved concept. It's, a, it's an important concept. And I highly recommend to those that actually want to understand this to, to open up the chapter in the book um, that explains it. However, that said, um, I'll do my best. So a DLE is the automatic compounding of information. So those three words, automatic compounding information. Let's work backwards. So a DLE has three components. One, a critical mass of data. So that's a scale effect. Two, the capabilities to process data into information. So that's a, a, an internal capability that's a competitive advantage. And three, a, a self-learning system that can take that information, generate something, a prediction, for example, see how that plays out, and then take the learning from that and repeat over again and improve. And so you've got three types of competitive advantage here that people may be familiar with, a scale effect, capabilities, and a network effect, in this case, a data network effect, which is another concept I go into in the book, that are all combining together to create this one really powerful new type of competitive advantage, which is a data learning effect. And just really quickly on each of those components, I'll add a little bit more. So critical mass of data, one, Sometimes it's a lot, sometimes it's a little, depending on the problem you're trying to solve. If you're trying to um, understand speech, you'll need a lot of data. If you're trying to um, predict the availability of something on a shelf, um, and it's like in a sandwich shop that has a very small amount of stock on a given day and very predictable to demand patterns, you know, it's always between 12 and 2 p.m., you won't need much data. So critical mass of data, the scale, is different um, depending on what you're trying to predict. Secondly, um, but, but there's always some number that you need to have some highly accurate prediction. Secondly, the capability to process data into information. Zeros and ones are data, but they're not information. Adding context to data, organizing it, labeling it, putting it next to other data, uh, allows you to then consider the thing you're trying to predict. So it turns data into information that you can use to learn. Now we could stop at step two as human beings and go, all right, we've got a critical mass of data. We've used our capabilities to turn it into information. And so let's just look at this table now and see if we can make a prediction. We could do that, but you know, we're generally not very good at that, uh, especially when we're looking at a lot of information or we have to make the prediction uh, in a very reliable or consistent way. And so that's where the third part of the DLE comes in, which is the self-learning system. And that is, you know, for example, a machine learning model or a reinforcement learn model that takes all of that information, tries to spot patterns, makes a prediction, puts that prediction into the real world, sees if it plays out over time, and then goes, all right, that was correct or incorrect. Let's rejig the model and make a different prediction. And then hopefully next time it's better. And if it's not, it rejigs in a different way and so on and so forth. And that has in it a data, what I call a data network effect, which I won't go into now. But so that's what a DLE is, a, the automatic compounding of information. It's a new type of competitive advantage. It combines existing types of competitive advantage, scale effects, learning effects and network effects. Uh, but it's in totality more powerful than any form of competitive advantage we've ever seen.
All right, and 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 uh, so we, when we talk about data, so data is you know obviously the the lifeblood of an, an AI system, and accessing data is possibly more difficult than it once mm. was with for various reasons, particularly around um, kind of consumer privacy and, 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 mm-hmm. and whatnot in cert- certain geographic markets. So uh, how should businesses approach the task of acquiring data to be able mm. to build and then perfect their AI system? Mm-hmm. So look, every company is different. Every data, re- every model needs different data, has different data requirements. And quite surprisingly to me, half of the book ended up being about all the weird and wonderful ways to collect data. And so there's a whole big section of the book that has actually 30 different subsections around, well, you can collect data from your customers or you could create a consumer app or you can get data from public sources or you can even create like a sensor network or put um, cryptocurrency as an incentive for people to contribute data. They're a data coalition. So I go through all of these weird and wonderful ways to get data in the book because one, it's so crucial. And two, you know, it's always just good to have more ideas around that. Um, and so I really encourage people to just sort of go through that, if only to just sort of provoke an idea. Um, so that's that. Um, now, to get to the, the nub of the question, the best place to start is where you already are, which is, well, what data are we just incidentally collecting every day that no one else is collecting? You know, do we have people walking around with clipboards in real life situations on real construction sites or production lines collecting data? Because we could maybe put that into a database and learn from it if we're not already doing that. Because no one else has got that data. They're not on those sites. They don't have these people. And it's sort of already structured in a way, like they're collecting the same data every day. Um, They're collecting at the same time of day. They're collecting it on the same sheet, filling out the same form. So that's probably a good clue as to where to start. You know, what are we already doing in terms of data collection? Uh, How structured is it? How regular is it? And how proprietary is it? Uh, And then think about, well, what could it be predictive of? Um, And so that's the other place to start. So one place to start is what are we already doing? The other place to start is, well, what do we want to predict? And what do we think is predictive of that thing? And you sort of already know, like if you're in a business every day, if you're in the printing business, you know what tends to cause, you know, all the inks to jam up on the line, then stop the whole thing going for a couple hours and you, you lose a lot of money you know what some of those causes of those jams are. And so then you can go, all right, well, what's the data we can collect that may be predictive of when that's going to happen with a high degree of accuracy? Or, you know, if you grow a certain crop, you know when, what are the sort of leading indicators of a good or a bad season. And so then you can go and collect data around those leading indicators. Um, So, you know, starting either on the one side with the data you're collecting or on the other side, with what you would like to predict in your heuristics, your hard-earned lessons around those predictions um, are, are good places to start. And then it's about you know working with concepts in the book and concepts you can learn from other books and online and also experts and consultants to figure out if you can start making that prediction using a computer rather than your own head. That seems like an almost unlimited array of applications and decisions that a business might 
make using AI? What, how, what's a sensible way for people to prioritize um, where they start with uh, um, AI and some of the predictions that they might choose to, to use it to make? Great point. I mean, I really do believe the first part of what you said, which is there is an almost unlimited array of things you can predict using AI or can use it for. Uh, and it's so exciting. There's so many things in so many businesses. It's just that people don't realize it because they think that AI is super complicated or requires a whole bunch of people with PhDs or really powerful computers or large scale data collection. And so I wrote a chapter in the book, which is the second main chapter called Lean AI that gets to this. And that is what can you do with one data set, with one predictive method or model on one computer that generates one report that will help you figure out whether or not the thing you think you can predict and would be useful to predict, you can predict. And so Lead AI is a series of questions. It's a series of do's and don'ts and tips and tricks checklists that are just sitting there in the book that help you figure out, all right, how can we just run a really small experiment? What is that experiment? And how do I actually do it? And then with the output I've got, what do I do next? Because that's the really important question. So, okay, we got it. We were able to make a prediction, but it was only this accurate. Well, should I buy more data and use the same models? Or should I pay a consultant to come up with a different model? Or should I pay for more computing time, so to speak, to run the model a few more times to see if it learns with a few extra steps, with a few extra sort of turns of the crank, so to speak. And so there's three rough areas you can spend the next couple of thousand dollars. You can spend the first, you know, thousand dollars running one experiment. And then the next couple of thousand dollars either buying more data, hiring a consultant, or on more computing time and then the next and so on and so forth, depending on how much you have to invest and how much time you have and what your accuracy requirements are. Maybe you just get to a good degree of accuracy on the first experiment, so you just move to a completely new one. Or maybe you you run that experiment again, again with more data, different models or more time, computing time, that is. And over time, it will be the case that the combination of all of these experiments or the ensemble of them will lead to like a bona fide self-learning artificially intelligent system. Um, but it's just about getting started. And that's what Lean AI helps you do. So we, we, we know uh, in our business from personal experience that recruiting talented mm. people, talented technical people, particularly around data science and, and machine learning mm -hmm. is, 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 is pretty tough. It's uh, certainly mm -hmm. some form of talent war. Uh, going on and um, there's the big companies mm -hmm. that will suck up the talent not just the Googles and Microsofts and Facebooks of the world that we all think about but there's a lot of other large companies out there so how um, you know how do how can companies go about um, securing talent to be able to work on this these, these type of um, projects I think there are a couple of things that are important when thinking about attracting the right talent one is having a good amount of data around the potential solution to an interesting problem. You know, if you have data on kidney failure patients, or if you have data on, you know, various environmental problems like wildfires and where they occur and how, 
a lot of people are going to be attracted, a lot of very smart people that know how to work with artificial intelligence are going to be attracted to working with you because they want to solve those problems for humanity and you have one of the only data sets that will help them apply their skills to solving that problem. So that's um, one thing is think about sort of marketing the unique data set that you have. Two is show an appreciation for the roles and you know the whole chapter in the book about all the new roles that exist in an AI first company. And if you show an appreciation that you know, a machine learning engineer is very different to a software engineer, a data infrastructure engineer is very different to an infrastructure engineer, a data product manager is very different to a product manager. Show an appreciation for all of these things, these nuances, people are more likely to want to work with you because they know they will be appreciated um, and managed correctly. The third thing is about management uh, of these roles in, in the correct way. And so again, in the book, I go through how these roles are all different. You know, so for example, it's, it is different um, as between a data scientist and a software engineer uh, in terms of what tools they need, the output that they produce, their work product, and <clears throat> their mode of interacting with the rest of the business. And so I have sort of a table there, which is like software engineer, data scientist, machine learning engineer, and then has what's their output, how do they like to be managed, what are their resource requirements, what tools do they need, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so, you know, making sure you appreciate how to manage them is important. And then giving people an opportunity to, one, be both centralized with other talented people in this area so that they can compare methods and share computing resources and whatnot and data but also decentralized enough that they're on the edge, so to speak, as in they're out there in the real world um, learning about this specific problem you're trying to solve um, from the people in your business that know a lot about that problem, whether they be doctors or plant managers or whatnot, <clears throat> so that you know, they can um, very quickly get to a point where they can come up with a, a really valuable solution. So. To summarize, firstly, marketing the value of your data. Secondly, showing an appreciation of the, the differing roles in an AI-first company. Thirdly, showing how these roles need to be managed differently. And fourthly, having an appropriate degree of centralization and decentralization so people are both around people that they can learn from um, in the, in, with respect to their existing skills in data science and machine learning, but also around people they can learn from with respect to the domain you're in. They're all important things. And I've got two, two chapters in the book about this. For larger companies in particular, what are some of the ways that they may struggle to become AI first? And um, how can they go about overcoming some of the challenges that they might have kind of turning the ship around to becoming an AI first business? You don't have to be AI first from day one to be an AI first company. Any company can turn around and be AI first tomorrow. Uh, not just startups, big companies can do this. Um, and that's, again, one of the reasons I wrote the books, because I truly believe in believe that and believe in the potential for big companies to do that. So that's the first thing to say. Um, now, how do you do it? Um, and what are some of the challenges? You know, I think developing a culture of experimentation, so allowing for lean AI to happen in companies is really important. Just get started with something, with some small experiment, one person, $1,000, a 
Like that's all it takes. And developing a culture where people are encouraged to run those experiments, I think is really important. The second thing is making sure you don't get stuck in just having the perfect database. There is no perfect database. Your database is the representation of your reality. Um, it's all the data you can possibly collect about uh, what you do as a business and around your business. And a lot of people, you know, even if they're not AI first, get stuck on organizing data and constantly managing data. Um, and especially if they're sort of embarking on their first AI project, they get stuck on that too. But look, the reality is there are so many good options out there that can clean and organize and store and allow you to access data really quickly and cheaply that didn't exist before. So it doesn't have to be that way anymore. And two, you can get very far just playing with the data that you already have and just again, running an experiment. So two, just not, not getting stuck on that. Um, and three, really respecting and utilizing the people you already have that already know a lot about your business. You know, they may not be data scientists, but they're able to generate predictions around like core parts of your business because they've been in it a long time. They've been doing it. They've been doing this in their head. So really respecting their expertise, I think is uh, really important. And then finally, it's just having a vocabulary, like being able to have conversations with people across your company about data learning effects and how you're developing them, about data network effects and where they exist in your company. And so having and sharing that vocabulary um, by, for example, getting them to read the book, um, but even just like sending them bits of the glossary or whatnot, will just enable you to have the conversations. Um, it's really hard to talk to someone who's an expert in your field, who's out there in the field, uh, if you're using different words and if they don't really know what you're going for here, you can talk about AI all day long, but if you don't frame it in terms of the core competitive advantage of your business by, for example, using the term data learning effects, they won't really get it and they'll think it's a waste of time. Um, but if they do understand what a data learning effect is and how powerful it is, then they might, uh, they might want to work with you on, on developing one. And the final um, area that I really wanted to touch on is startups. So startups are an area that I have a keen interest in. Um, I work for a business, uh, I run a business called um, Hyper. Mm -hmm. We use AI and data science and we help retailers and consumer brands to improve decision making, particularly around the product range they offer to their customers, how they price it and how they market it to customers in personalized ways. So from your point of view as an investor, how do you decide which AI first companies to back? You know, I use a lot of what's in the book to do that. Um, but fundamentally, look, my job is to figure out like, does it work and is it valuable? And the does it work question in the context of an AI first company really involves digging into the experiments that the companies run. You know, what data did you use? What models did you use? What accuracy did you, did you get to? And what accuracy do you need to get to? What's the um, prediction usability threshold, the put, as I call it. So for example, in medicine, the put is very high, you know, for a doctor to use a prediction about whether or not a patient will have a certain condition, like a, 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 either a, an acute or a chronic condition is really, really high, especially in the acute cases. And so you have to have a very, very accurate model. And if you're only at 60% accuracy, it's gonna be really hard for me to come up with all the ways in which you can get to 99 or 100% accuracy. 
Um, but if you're in a different industry, for example, you know, the printing press example I gave before, you, you might only have to be able to predict failures 80% of the time and you're already at 70. So then I can ask, all right, well, you use this data set, but if you had a different data set, it might, be, might, might improve the accuracy. Or you use this model, but if you use this model, it might be, get better. Um, or maybe a few more epochs, a few more runs of the model, as I said before, will help. So anyway, it, it requires a fundamental understanding of the underlying technology and running through the experiments. So that's sort of how I figure out how it works. It also requires knowing what's being measured and what it means. Um, and so in the latter part of the book, I go through all of those metrics that we use to try to understand if these systems are working well. Um, there's a whole chapter on, on measuring the loops, so to speak, measuring the degree of um, competitive advantage and whether the system's working. So that's the first thing, how it works. Then the, is it valuable thing? Well, this again gets to, right, are you at the prediction usability threshold? Is it accurate enough for the customer to put it into action? And then what does it mean in terms of ROI? Like, it, look, in a sense, it's not that complicated. It's like any other thing that a customer is buying. Is it going to generate a good return on investment? They pay X for your software. And is it delivering value to their business? That's it. Um, so in a sense, it's not complicated at all. Um, and, you know, what we really have to look at is the same thing as what we have to look at with any other software investment. And the questions we have to ask current or potential customers are the same, which is, all right, does this make something better, faster, cheaper for you? How much? Uh, and then therefore, what are you going to pay for this? Yeah, so the fundamentals remain. Okay. Mm -hmm. Not that different, exactly. But in the context of AI, the, the, the return is generated by being able to see around the corner, make a prediction, or being able to automate something, save some money. Um, it's not, you know, like with software, it's being able to usually just make something faster. Yeah. Okay. I mean, it certainly feels like there's uh, been an explosion of um, startup businesses who are AI first or are mm -hmm. building a product that enables um, uh, companies to be able to, um, you know, do something quicker or cheaper, whatever it might be, but using AI to do that. So, you know, surely it can only be a good thing mm. that we're seeing a, such a um, volume and variety mm. of AI first businesses start up. So, you know, that seems like a real, a real plus. Yeah, I think so. All right, super. So, Ash, it's been um, a fascinating discussion. Um, I'd encourage anybody listening to check the book out. Um, it's, a, it's a great read. As I said at the start of the podcast, if you're a business executive or if you're charged with actually implementing things in a, in a business to get AI, uh, become AI first. I think it's well worth reading. So really appreciate you coming on the podcast and, you know, all the best for the book. Thank you very much. And everyone can find the book at theaifirstcompany.com. My thanks to Ash Fontana for joining us on the podcast this week and sharing what he thinks it takes to become an AI first company. I think he shared some really valuable advice, which is highly relevant to both startups and established businesses. If you want to learn more, check out his book, which you can find via the website, theaifirstcompany.com. I hope you enjoyed the show. And if you'd like to hear more about what Hypergroup does and how we use data 
and AI to help companies understand their customers better and make improved, unified, customer-led decisions, check out our website at www.hyperdashgroup.co.uk or contact me at peter at hyperdashgroup.co.uk. Thanks for listening, and we hope you join us again soon. 